Luke chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 21. Hear once again the inerrant, the infallible word of our God. When eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two pigeons. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this morning the blessing of his word. As we take up Luke's gospel, we come to a moment once more, as we did when we looked at the 21st verse, that is largely overlooked. In many ways, we move from the shepherds and we hasten to Simeon and we hasten to Anna. But between those two moments, between those two scenes, the inspired historian shows us something that is really profound, if not very alien to our own experience. It's a striking thing, isn't it? That after we leave circumcision. That sign was given to the covenant people of God from Abraham and forward. We come now to the temple. We have, and though we could insist on this for some time, we have a remarkable moment here where the incarnate God comes to his temple for the very first time. We have a moment where, in a time of incredible declension and decay in the church, nevertheless, the incarnate Christ comes into his temple. And we read Matthew 12, and when we read Matthew 12, you'll notice there that Christ is very pointed. When he speaks about himself in relation to the temple, he says there's a greater than the temple that is here. Speaking of himself. Luke takes us to that moment. When the greater temple comes. The one who is in his very incarnation. Emmanuel. God dwelling with his people. He comes. To his temple. When we look at this text. Then we have yet again. The gospel writer setting before us. A holy a sacred moment. And what's striking about that, of course, is that Luke has been so concerned, as we've already seen, to show us the humanity of Christ. You remember in Matthew's Gospel, the emphasis is always on the kingship of Christ. Always it is Joseph is the one that's being dealt with, and it's the kingly lineage that's brought to the fore. But but Luke is very much different. His interest is to show us, of course, the same Christ, without any contradiction, but to show us Christ in His humility. And yet, nevertheless... As this gospel writer sets before us Christ incarnate, Christ born, made of a woman, made under the law, he brings us to this profound moment where the greater temple comes into the temple of brick and mortar. It's this paradox, if you will, between holiness and humility that we find once again before us. 
Now what I want us to do this morning is take up simply this moment. This moment that's described for us in verses 22 to 24. When Christ is first presented in the temple. And as you notice, this is of course describing one day. But there are two ordinances or two rites that Luke presents to us. In fact, he presents to us these two rites, these two ordinances, and then he provides for us two citations from the law to explain what they are. And so let's first of all look at those two ordinances. We're told here in verse 22 that when the days of her, that's Mary's purification, were accomplished, she offered sacrifice. And of course what Luke is telling us is that they were fulfilling the law that we read of in Leviticus 12. And so what she does is she brings her sacrifices. Sacrifices that indicated her ritual cleansing to the temple. And we'll certainly have to come back to all that is meant there, but fix that first of all before yourselves as you think of the text. Here you have Joseph and Mary bringing Christ. And Mary is to offer sacrifice now according to the law for her purification. But even on that same day, you'll notice here that also it was to present Christ to the Lord that they came to Jerusalem, that they came to the temple. The word present there is translated elsewhere, yield, or or most commonly to offer. He's offered or he's presented to the Lord. And this too is in fulfillment of the law. It's part of the law that's given to us in Numbers 18, where, where the child, the firstborn male, was presented in the temple, and the father of that child was to pay to the Levites, to the priests on hand, a sum of money, 20 garas. And in doing so, he would have, and this is the word of the law, he would have redeemed his son. Now, when we look at that particular example, we need to come exactly back to how Luke describes for us what's going on. And that brings us to the first citation from the law. The first ordinance is that of purification. The second is that of this presentation before the Lord. And Luke tells us why this presentation takes place. Quoting here from Exodus 13, he writes, Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And he takes us, of course, to the Exodus. In Exodus 13, whenever the people of Israel are still in Egypt, they are given laws about how they are to function when they, are, when they leave the house of bondage. And this is part of that law. God has said, I will visit upon the firstborn of Egypt my wrath. But I will not destroy your firstborn, and therefore your firstborn belong to me. That's the sense of the text. In Exodus 13, that's precisely what the Lord is saying. The firstborn, every male in Israel, will be consecrated to the Lord, dedicated to his priestly service. Now, of course, as we read throughout the law, that law takes on a different form. It's adjusted. In Leviticus 8, we're told this, I have taken the Levites for all the firstborn of the children of Israel. In Exodus 13, it was all the firstborn, regardless of their tribe. But then the Lord narrows the command to pertain only to the house of Levi. Now, what was to be done then for the rest of the firstborn who were not Levites? Well, they were to present their firstborn males to the Lord in this way, in the way we have in our text this morning. That was why they paid the redemption price. They were recognizing that their firstborn belonged to the Lord. 
but by paying as it were to have their firstborn returned to them since the Lord had taken the Levites in their stead. They were still to be presented to the Lord. They were still to be presented even in the way that we have in our text. Now, if that explains for us the why of the ordinance, if you will, why this is done. The second citation tells us how the ordinance, the first ordinance, was fulfilled. You'll notice there, verse 24, again, citation from the law, it reads that they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, what's striking is this citation from the book of Leviticus, again, chapter 12, is not actually a full citation. This is only that part of the law that pertained to those who could not offer a lamb. In other words, friend, this was a part of that law that belonged to those who were impoverished. To those who had insufficient funds even to offer a solitary lamb in sacrifice to God. And so what is the gospel writer telling us? In a surprising way, friend, what we find here is that the house of David has fallen so far. The house of David has fallen to a point, an impossibly impecuniary place, where even for the dedication of the firstborn, they can only offer these two turtle doves. How far had the house of David fallen? How amiss had things grown in the church of God? Now, as we look at this text, there are a few inferences that we draw from it. And the first is that as we look at the whole text, verses 22 to 24, we can't miss the fact that we are to see this moment in a way that is entirely uncommon. I mean, see how the gospel writer has been preparing us. Everything about Christ is set, as it were, in bold. We're supposed to see every single moment as a holy moment. As a vignette that really requires from us the utmost reverence. And so friend, what we're looking looking at here is not mere empty ritual. The gospel writer has been telling us that everything this one does, everything that you see in this text, it is the God-man who is doing it. Oh friend, what does that mean? That means that here you have Christ. The one who is anticipated not only by Mary and by Zacharias, but Christ, who Zacharias tells us there, is the one through whom the Lord has visited and redeemed his people. The Christ who performed the mercy promised to their fathers and to the remembrance of his holy covenant. The Christ that had fulfilled the oath that he swore to his father Abraham. That adds significance, doesn't it? even to the thought of circumcision. It was the very ordinance that always pointed to Christ. And now Luke shows us this Christ has come. But then we go even further. We see here that Christ is presented, that is set before the Lord, consecrated wholly to God. And what's striking is, in the first chapter, Luke has Mary tell us, That holy thing, or that holy one, as we thought of in that text, which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. Oh, this is a very different presentation then, isn't it? A very different presentation, maybe not externally, but the one who's presented here is called holy. He is called holy, the holy one. He is called the Son of the Most High. 
This presentation then is like unlike any other. He is the one who gives knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. Friend, if we read this text as though it were simply just another example of fulfillment of the ceremonial law, we have missed the point. We have missed everything the gospel writer has said up to this point. And so what what do we have in front of us then? The reality is we have here types. These were given as shadows for the people of God that they might be trained to think of Christ. These were means of grace to set before the church underage Jesus Christ, His person and His work. And what's striking in our text then, what you have here are types that not only show us how these things were enacted historically, but types that really are instructions. Even in this moment, friend, you and I are being taught something about Christ. Even in this moment, something about the person and work of Christ as it was for the Old Covenant age, so it is for us, there is still instruction being taken from here. And so friend, we're not only just seeing Christ in history, in this moment we should expect that we're learning something about Him. But thirdly and finally, the inference that we draw from this is just that in Christ's presentation we have a striking, a striking picture of Christ in the church among his people. A striking picture of the very thing the writer of the Hebrews insists upon. In all things it behooves him to be made like unto his brethren. You see that in the text. You see here Christ made of a woman, made under the law. And then as he's presented, set holy before the Lord, don't we see here Christ as he is the one who sanctifies and also the one who's not ashamed to call those who are sanctified his brethren. We see here the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8, that is the Son who is consecrated and is dedicated forevermore. Friends, that's the Christ that's held out to us in this text. This is not an insignificant moment in redemptive history. This is a Christ who is dedicated, who is also our brother. And so what we learn from this text is just this, that in this moment we see Christ was made brother And as we'll see in a moment's time, also substitute for his people. Christ was made brother and substitute for his people. And I want us to consider that just under these two headings. I want us to see, first of all, the likeness that he assumes with his people. And then secondly, the kind of consecration that he has as our Redeemer. And so, first of all, the likeness that he assumes. When we look at this text, we remember, of course, that this is a scene in verse 22 of ceremonial or ritual purification. The purification that's in view here is certainly not physical. The purification that is looked for, the cleanliness that is sought, is certainly not something that is physical or medicinal. And neither is it setting before us this idea that there was something inherently even evil in childbearing. 
What is it setting before us? What is the ceremonial law as a whole set before us when we think about this moment? When, when, when a mother who has just brought forth a child, of course, a moment that ought to be filled with joy, what should we think when that moment is according to the ceremonial law, a moment judged of uncleanness, determined to be ritually impure? What are we being taught? Well, friend, I think palpably the answer to that question is just that we are corrupt originally. The Lord would not allow his people in bringing forth any of their children without this being set before them in clear and bold terms. You see, the reality is then every single time a child was born, every single time a child was born to the church in the Old Covenant, What was set before them was their need for reconciliation with God. And the reality is the purification that's in view here was tied integrally to circumcision. You remember, if you brought forth a male child, the mother would be ritually impure only for 41 days. And the reason says the law was because the child would be circumcised. But then as you come to the end of that particular part of the law, We're told that those who would be uncircumcised, those who were female, well, if the mother brought forth a child, a girl, she would remain unclean for 81 days. What's crucial there in the law is not the fact that it was male versus female. What's crucial is one had the covenant sign set upon them, and the other didn't. And so, what we see here in this text is a very clear picture that original sin must be dealt with. Original corruption must be dealt with. Reconciliation, even at the life's inception, must be sought. This is precisely what the Lord sets before his people of old. And with striking friend, I reiterate this point. Note in Leviticus 12 the kinds of sacrifices that are made. The sacrifices that are made there are not peace offerings, meat offerings, or trespass offerings. Trespass offerings, remember, are for advertent sins. What is offered is burnt offering and sin offering. What the Lord God is teaching in the ceremonial law is that for this child, as for all of mankind, they need one who would become a true holocaust for them. That is a whole burnt offering. Offered to the Lord. And why? Well, what the sin offering teaches us is because riven right through human nature is sin. Right through human nature is this rebellion against God. And so every single time a child was born, every single time they were reminded that if any were to be really presented before God pure or clean, A friend, even from the youngest to the oldest, they require an offering that is made to God that is entirely consumed. An offering that deals with the sin that lies in the deepest part of mankind. But what's striking is in verse 22, our text reads, it was the days of her purification according to the law that were made, or accomplished rather, What's striking is in the original, it is not the feminine pronoun that's used there. 
It is their purification that is described. And the there is masculine. In verse 22, what Luke is telling us then is that the purification that was to be observed, that ceremonial ritual that was looked to, was not for Mary only, but it was even for the child that she was bringing. It was also for Christ. Now, if we just said at this moment that it made perfect sense for Mary to be offering a sacrifice of this kind because she was born with original sin. But how on earth can we speak of Christ being ritually unpure or ritually unclean? Well, friend, what's striking is there is no confusion. The Spirit of God spoke without error when he included Christ in this moment. What you have here is Christ taking upon himself his people's legal impurity, even though he's without sin. He identifies himself with a people that were riven right through with sin according to the law, though he himself was without sin. At this very point on this text, Calvin puts it this way. He says, Christ, for our benefit, took upon him our uncleanness with respect to legal guilt, the fountain of purity, in order to wash away our stains. He chose to be reckoned unclean. He chose, friend, to be identified with unclean people, his people, in point of the law. And that's what this text holds out to us. Christ takes upon himself not only our brother as he enters the visible church and comes under all of the laws that pertain to it, but he becomes our brother even legally, reckoned unclean for his people's sake. And what we learn here then, friend, is just this, that sinless, nevertheless, Christ took upon himself his people's legal uncleanness. And just for a moment, friend, imagine this. This moment if you can. Here you have Mary carrying this child into the temple. She carries this Christ who is the Holy One of God. Son of the Most High. And she comes that they, she and he may be declared ritually clean through sacrifice. And what's striking is this was the one child. The one man who required of himself no ritual cleansing. Who in point of the law personally was without guilt and was without blame. If you could just imagine this for a moment. Imagine the temple gates standing here. This is the one child, Mary, that you need not bring. This is the one child for which you need not a reminder of man's original corruption, because he was not corrupt from the beginning. This is the one whom I, as, as the law, find no guilt. This is the one who is absolutely blemishless. Yes, of course, I need, I need from you those reminders of original corruption with regard to yourself, with regard to every child born of Adam naturally, but not this one. Not this one. This one is holy. This child blameless. This child spotless. Why are you bringing him here for this cleansing? 
This second Adam who is not contaminated with the rebellion of the first. Because God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's why, my dear friend, does it not cause you to tremble? This text, even here, presenting to us a Christ who is willing, though sinless of himself, to be reckoned unclean for the sake of his people. One who is spotless, blemishless, numbered among transgressors, that he might save them, and that they might be made the righteousness of God through them. This is that moment when the whole temple, the very first introduction of the temple to Christ, the introduction that is made is Christ as he is, reckoned unclean for the sake of his people. He is Zion's builder and the bearer of her glory. He is the spotless and the holy one. And yet he's pleased to be presented in this way. Reckoned unclean for a people who were born unclean. Friend, what does this mean? Legally, Christ, to him was credited all of our inherent uncleanness. Our original corruption imputed to him. Beloved, just think about that for a moment, please. Those words come off from our lips far too easily. Christ was accounted as one who was born a hater of God. Christ was accredited our coldness and our deadness in religion. Christ was accounted our sin from our conception. And all the while he was absolutely pure. Analogies fail us at this moment, but just think about this. Think about a child raised in a covenant home. Raised in a home and, and, and they've sought to be faithful in all things. And then suddenly this child is accused of the worst and most unclean things that the world can accuse them of. And are treated accordingly. For imagine what that child would be thinking. Imagine how shocking and horrifying it might be that they were not guilty themselves of all the crimes, these horrific crimes that they're, they're being said to be having committed. Friend, that's not even an analogy that comes within the foothills of what Christ takes upon himself, who is absolutely pure and yet legally was pleased to be counted unclean for the sake of his people. One who always loved the Lord his God with all his mind, heart, soul, and strength. One who always was warm to the things of God. One who always loved God his people with all of his heart. Accounted as one who was a hater of God. A despiser and a persecutor of his people. Accounted as one who had no righteousness of his own. Legally, this is what Christ does for his people. Yet without sin, says the Apostle, he was made to be sin for us. Friend, this ought to teach us how needful we are for one to deal with our original corruption. 
if the incarnate Son of God must take upon himself this uncleanness, that his people may be redeemed. How deep is that stain of original sin? How deep is that stain that is in you and in me? How needful are we of such a Christ? But secondly, friend, we find not only that Christ is pleased to be legally reckoned like his brothers, but we find even here he is consecrated for them. Verse 23, you note here that Luke cites from Exodus 13. He says, every male shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, why is that striking? It's striking because he does not cite from the text that would most naturally be cited at this moment. He doesn't cite from Numbers 18. You remember, Numbers 18 is the law of redemption of the firstborn. Numbers 18 sets before us the idea that that the Levite stands in place of this command that all the firstborn belong to God. In other words, in Numbers 18 you have the idea that that the firstborn sons of non-Levitical tribes, these sons were presented to God, not consecrated to God for priestly service. But Luke doesn't cite from Numbers 18 here. It's very obvious the gospel writer does not have the redemption of sons in view. What he has in view is the original law given in Exodus 13. In which the requirement is the firstborn son would be consecrated a priest. This is unlike any other presentation of any non-Levite. In all of scripture. In all of those other cases. They were not consecrated to the priesthood. They were merely presented to the Lord. And redeemed. But in Luke's estimation. As the spirit of God. Brings this moment to us. He would have us think. Of sons consecrated. To priesthood. Dedicated to the Lord. And of course this pulls out to us. That in this moment you have. Not a Levite. But you have a priest after a higher order consecrated to God. This is Christ consecrated as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It was a presentation that really was a consecration. But of a greater and a higher higher sort. Now friend of course we know then that Christ is sanctified. To remain a high priest to God for his people. And when we think of the priesthood, we think often in terms of offering and intercession. And of course, Christ does this. You see, Christ is the one who ever liveth to make intercession for his people. It is Christ, of course, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Intercession and sacrifice. But I want you to note in this text, there's another way that we need to be thinking of the priesthood. Just think for a moment of the Levite. You remember... You remember that their lives testified itself. That their, their very lives testified to this idea of substitution because of the law given in Exodus 13. The Levites would stand. Their firstborn would be consecrated to the priesthood instead of taking every firstborn child from every other tribe. They stood as a substitute in that regard for the rest of Israel. But we can even go just slightly further, can't we? We go back to the Exodus just for a moment. 
And you remember in Exodus 13, the law is given with regard to the firstborn because Israel's firstborn children were spared when Egypt's were not. But allow me to ask you a very basic question. From whom were they spared? From whom were they spared? Exodus 13. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. For what did Passover commemorate? It was not just that they were delivered from Egyptian bondage. It was that they were delivered from the wrath of God. They too, their firstborn sons, would have been destroyed had the blood not been applied on the mantle. That's the Lord's statement very clearly. He was the one who would destroy. It would be His wrath that would be manifest. And if Israel's firstborn children were spared, they were spared from the wrath of God. And so, friend, what do we have in this text? The firstborn of Israel are redeemed by God, and so they are dedicated to Him. They are made consecrated to Him, and naturally so. But, friend, for the Israelite, what did that mean? Prior to Numbers 18, that meant that every single firstborn male was taken from you, was divested of any inheritance, was forced into priestly service. That's the burden of the law. Every single firstborn son taken from you. And yet what does the Lord do? He makes a change. And he makes it so that only the Levitical tribe would be those so consecrated to him. It's a form of substitution. And even in that moment, don't you see the Lord Jesus Christ foreshadowed? A substitute for his people who not only pays the price of their redemption but stands also for them consecrated forever as their priest. His inheriting all that he does, his unsearchable riches, all of the glory that he holds as mediator, all of these things holding them that his people may have life, may know God's grace. Christ was both the one who paid this debt, paid the redemption price with his own blood. And he was also the one who was willingly made a debtor on your behalf. He was truly substitute for his people. And what Luke tells us here very pointedly is that's the kind of consecration that's in view. You who are spared from the wrath of God, You who are spared from the deserved wrath of God. Well, friend, you need to recognize that all of that flows from the fact that Christ has been given to you 
one who would be called your brother, and even legally be reckoned unclean for your sake, and one who would be consecrated a priest, whose work and, of course, his very life testifies to the substitution. As we close, there are a few points of application. The first is, of course, that this text urges us to think about how close Christ comes to his people. He is pleased to be called his people's brother, even to the the point of being reckoned legally or ceremonially unclean with them. And he's pleased to become his people's substitute, really, to stand in their place in every regard. You see, friend, that means nothing to us unless we are a people who reflect much on our need for such a Christ. If we don't see our own uncleanness, why would we run to this Christ who would stand in our stead? And I'm speaking here, friend, not only to the unconverted. I'm speaking here of Christians. Friend, we are a generation of people who very seldom think of our uncleanness. And is it any wonder that we are a generation then that so seldom think of Christ? This text reminds us that we are originally unclean. The law reminded us of that much. And that we need a Savior to deal with that original uncleanness. We need this text to instruct us of ourselves and also instruct us of what Christ offers. But finally, friend, I think it's important for me to draw down just as we close on that idea of sacrifice that's made here. This is a moment unlike any other in redemptive history. Here you have the one who will offer through the eternal spirit himself without spot to God. A sacrifice is made for his ritual cleansing. What do we make of that? Well, friend, all you have here is the type and the antitype, the shadow and the substance converging. In which in this very moment, in this very moment, you have solemnly set before us the reality that Christ will be that sacrifice. As an infant, our Christ was presented with this sign that it would be his blood that would be shed, his body that would be torn for his people. The two turtle doves that were killed for a sin offering, they were first decapitated by the priest's thumb. Their blood, like water from a glass, was poured around the altar and then sprinkled upon it. And all of that brutality and all of that gore was to set before us in such, in such a picture that would certainly grab at us, but in a picture that certainly only brings us to the foothills, what the sacrifice of Christ would be. Those turtle doves did not suffer as much as Christ would willingly suffer to be sacrifice and sacrificing priest for his people. That's what we have in this text. And so, friend, come to Christ. You who are unclean, you need this Christ today, tomorrow, 
and for eternity. To stand as the one who is reckoned unclean that you might become the righteousness of God. Come to him afresh. Lay hold of the Christ as he's presented in this text. And friend, marvel that he's willing to be called your brother. Willing to be reckoned unclean that you might be the righteousness of God. Amen.